Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. We're back. We've had some sleep and now we're going to try to make sense of what in God's name is going on. I'm joined in the studio this week by Times columnist Philip Collins, political reporter Henry Zeffman and columnist Rachel Sylvester. We'll be taking a look at what the election means for the Tory party, for the Labour party, for Brexit, for the country and for the very survival of us all. We start this week with Rachel Sylvester, who's going to take a look at what on earth is happening in number 10. Well, I wrote a column this week saying that Theresa May is a zombie prime minister, that she's in office but not in power. But the Tories do actually have a leader who's a winner. Ruth Davidson, leader of the Scottish Tories, won 12 extra seats north of the border at the election in an area where the Conservative brand has been toxic for decades. She's a kickboxing, vodka-drinking lesbian and doesn't just talk about modernisation, she exemplifies it. Some MPs think she could be their saviour, but even if she doesn't come to Westminster, I think her party has a lot to learn from her. Rachel, it was extraordinary seeing the results coming in and seeing that it clearly wasn't working for Theresa May in England and Wales. And I know because I'd spoken to people in the Tory party in Scotland, they were very nervous that they hadn't been able to insulate their campaign from what was happening down south. And then she won 13 seats. I know. What was fascinating was that they they ran a campaign which was sort of vote Tory to stop a second independence referendum, but that that worked in an area where the Tories had been loathed for years because they'd managed to successfully separate their campaign from the national one and, and make it somehow socially acceptable to vote Tory again. And that is, I think, down to Ruth Davidson's leadership. She's always been a very sort of positive character, optimistic message. So during the kind of Scottish referendum, she wouldn't have anything to do with the project fear that the Better Together campaign were running. And it's, it was the same during the election campaign. She refused to take all the messages that Linton Crosby was sending out from <laughs> central office. Um, and she sort of thought about, she had very different policies. You know, she even said pensioners could keep their winter fuel allowance in contrast to Theresa May. She refused to bang on about immigration being terrible. She, 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 she kind of um, banged a positive drum. Uh, and she sort of is a sort of got an optimistic, slightly infectious, energetic nature that people warm to. And I think it's a, just a real message for the Tories that Project Fear doesn't actually work. It didn't work in England. And you can win with a positive message and an optimistic message and that people actually prefer that. And that the danger for the Tories is they retoxify, retoxify their brand every time they are mean and nasty. And actually it's much better to be positive and then you actually the ultimate underlying problem for the conservatives is that people don't actually trust them or like them and that if you can get over that then you can start winning again it was it struck me this week i went and saw the smp had a photo op in parliament square with big ben in the background and it was obviously supposed to be celebratory all of their mps coming back but actually it felt more like a wake they were all sort of hugging each other sort of a bit too long as if you know there were survivors who just stepped off of a you know a sinking ship or something because for the SNP to lose 21 seats and speaking to them some of them there they were saying that they think their entire strategy will now have to change in Scotland they thought that their heartlands were the rural areas and actually that's where they've ceded ground to the the Tories and now their future lies in the cities. Well, they've become the establishment, haven't yeah. they? And Ruth Davidson and the Conservatives have become the insurgents. And in an era of kind of anti-politics, when the insurgent and the outsider is winning, you know, step forward Jeremy Corbyn, um, or at least doing well, uh, then then they're going to start to succeed. And the, whoever's in power, it's very hard to win, it seems, from a position of power and authority. 
Phil, what do you make of Ruth Davidson versus Theresa May? I think Ruth Davidson's very impressive, but I think we need to enter a caveat, as you did with Theresa May and, and others did too, which is to say that when you're tested at the very highest level, you find out things about someone that you hadn't seen before. At every level that Ruth Davidson has been so far, she's been excellent. You know, I really admire her, and I think her performance has been really very good, and she has passed every test. Whether she can go to another level, I simply don't know. I think she might be able to. Um, you get a hunch and a sense of whether someone's got the, the extra bit, and I think she might well have. But it probably wouldn't be ideal for her to do that now. If you were advising her in her own career, and from every indication I get, I think she knows this too, she is, she's got a job there, she's doing it really well, and she'd probably be well advised to do it very well for a few more years. And to be fair to her, I think she doesn't, she specifically says she doesn't have any ambitions to come to Westminster yes. for now at least, but she's only 38. That makes so, me think more which highly quite, of her, because yeah. I think well, that's there is that, that, it, Whenever somebody, ruled, like when Alan Johnson said he was never interested in leading the Labour Party, that made people want him to be leading <laughs> the Labour yeah. Party. True, though Alan thought he wasn't good enough to do it, and I don't think Ruth Davidson is saying that. I think she's quite wisely thinking, I may well be good enough, but it's too early for me, I need more time to be blooded and experienced, and I think that's probably a, an intelligent thing to do. Whether the interests of the country are best served by that is an entirely separate question. Henry Zuffman, there is a, a crucial flaw in this plan, of course, that she's not an MP. Yeah, I mean, as Michael Gove learned, when you when you spend a long time denying that you want to do a certain job, it's much better than never to try to do that job. Um, <laughs> and I think Ruth Davidson should stick to that, I think, for good. I mean, the one thing we're missing, having had, you know, Gordon Brown as a Prime Minister who represented a Scottish seat, is that even since 2010, there's been quite a lot of devolution. I think it's quite hard to actually have a Scottish Prime Minister now, even if, you know, Ruth Davidson comes to Westminster representing an English seat. Uh, you know, a, a big part of parliamentary business is, is now transacted uh, on English MP-only votes, even though the Scottish MPs eventually have a say. But also, more generally, I, I, th I think for her brand, which is very much, you know, the, the different Tory north of the border, it becomes much more complicated. The second that you, you know, come down to Westminster and basically reveal ambition... Uh, your your brand takes on a sort of harder-nosed, more calculated edge. But the, the other thing I think we're missing about what Ruth Davidson's done, you know, we're talking about Theresa May transacting with the DUP, who have 10 MPs. Ruth Davidson has basically made clear since Thursday that Theresa May is also going into coalition or into a confidence <laughs> and supply arrangement with her and with her 12 MPs. And I think that's a really canny way to behave because, you know, that is enough MPs who, if they withdraw their support on certain legislation cause that legislation to fall uh, but it also allows her to create distinctive appeal north of the border. I Rachel? think the point is that she doesn't have to be Prime Minister or Leader to have a huge influence exactly. and mm. she is already going to have a huge influence and also I think the point is that the Conservative Party, whoever is the leader needs to learn from what she's done and that's about having a more liberal genuinely compassionate approach. She talks about sort of the importance of tackling poverty and inequality with a sort of passion that Theresa May does show sometimes, but it, you feel that sort of she really gets it. She's not just rhetorically interested in the just about managing, but also that she, you know, she's she, she said, um, she tweeted last week that, you know, gay rights, equalities legislation was more important to her than the party and that sense of somebody who's not tribal and who just seems like a kind of normal person that really matters <laughs> in politics and and the Tories have to learn from that positive tone and also that character yeah. the, attribute. The big difference between Theresa May and Ruth Davidson in this election was that Ruth Davidson was the opposition your, your first point. Uh, the SNP are the government and the Scottish people finally realised 
and the SNP were punished for very traditional reasons, which was they have been the government for ages and things are not very good. And the, the Conservatives, to some extent, were the beneficiaries of that. Clearly, Theresa May didn't have that advantage. So they were fighting different election campaigns. Apart from that, I think the contrast between their performance is exaggerated because overall in Britain, the Tories began the campaign on 43% and they ended on 43%. In net terms, the story here is not about the Conservative Party. That 43% might always have been comprised of Theresa May's English seats and Ruth Davidson's Scottish seats. We don't know. What we do know is there was no great movement in the Conservative vote. Now, you might postulate that Tories should have gone up during the campaign, in which case they you can say they lost some during the campaign, but that's a hypothesis. What we can see is that they didn't lose any votes, which is a perfectly... When you're at 43, that's a perfectly reasonable performance. The thing that they didn't foresee, and nobody did, is what we're going to come on to later, which was the Labour surge. So it may be that the contrast we're suggesting between Theresa May's electoral performance and Ruth Davidson's is not quite as stark as it looks like. I suppose, I suppose in, in political terms, Ruth Davidson looks like someone on the up and... Theresa May looks like someone on the way down. Yes. How long do we think Theresa May's got in the job, Henry? Uh, On Thursday night, I would have expected her to resign by the morning. I actually increasingly think she may well last, you know, until the end of the Article 50 window uh, in mid-2019. And the simple reason is that the Tories don't have anyone to turn to. I mean, Theresa May ending up as Prime Minister was partly a function of the fact that the Tory bench was pretty thin. They just exploded one by one around her. <laughs> well, 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 that too. But I mean, you've also got to remember the final final contender was, was Andrea Leadsom, who, you know, uh, as Rachel revealed, uh, was, was flaky um, at best. Um, who were the other options? Boris Johnson. Uh, firstly, the public... Uh, have fallen out of love with him because he used his one popularity trick to promise them £350 million a week for the NHS. It's not coming. I mean, I think if he ended up as Prime Minister, he'd probably have to do it, which is the best argument for him not being Prime Minister because that money is not there. Uh, And he's not popular amongst the Tory parliamentary party, certainly not in the way he used to be. Amber Rudd is often cited as as a sort of Remainer liberal candidate, but firstly, I think she's slightly tainted in the country by her willingness to go out and defend Theresa May. She was probably the second most public face of of this disastrous campaign, and that's what it was. She's got a 300-vote majority in her seat, although she could always move seat, but most crucially, it's not really clear that she has many friends in the Tory party. And then David Davis, who, you know, resigned in 2008, from the shadow cabinet to fight a quixotic by-election uh, on a piece of legislation which, you know, was already dead. Um, he's 68 uh, and has, you know, Youngster. a totally different... Well, I mean, he's Jeremy Corbyn's age, but but in 2022 that makes you 73. Um, but also just has, has totally non-Tory mainstream views on things like terrorism and civil liberties and foreign policy. So, I mean, it's very... I mean, it's much more likely to me that a new candidate emerges who we're not talking about in the next two years while Theresa May holds the fort. And that's when the Tory Parliamentary Party can move against Theresa May. And also the problem is the Tory MP is absolutely terrified of having a general election, which Mm. they think they might actually lose. So I spoke to one former minister yesterday who said, you know, she's on live support. It's just a question of when we pull the plug. But nobody wants to pull the plug yet because they're worried that that would trigger an inevitable leadership contest followed by an inevitable general election. Well, isn't there an argument you either, if you're worried that a new leader triggers a general election, don't you do it now? So that you can, whoever the new leader is, can claim the same mandate as the, you know, sit on the same manifesto. You're just delivering on the same. Problem. The longer that she stays, the more likely it is that you have to have another election if you change leader. Why? 
what about what happens then the day after you've changed leader and you don't have an election? Are you going to have a really stiff podcast in which you demand one? <laughs> and what if they then don't listen? No, you can always do it. The question is whether it's politically advantageous to you to do so, and, and they probably can. I mean, I agree with Henry and Rachel. All the incentives are for them to stick with this extraordinarily unstable equilibrium, which is sort of what it is. And you can't see a route forward, really, on anything. The thing is, there will be some sticking point where, you know, she just loses the confidence of the House. That's the problem. It's so, it's very hard to see how it's sustainable for longer yeah. than a few months, to be honest, because there'll be some vote on something to do with Brexit yeah. or something to do with civil liberties. It's a good and job at this moment of having no government that we're not negotiating our way out of the most complex series <laughs> in the history of British administration, isn't it? Well, almost as if you'd planned it, you've, uh, you've brought us on nicely uh, to the next subject. So let's turn to the small matter of Brexit and uh, political reporter and Brexit briefing writer, uh, Henry, <laughs> guru. guru, Henry Zephyr. Brexit means Brexit. Theresa May was rightly pilloried for her frequent use of this phrase. But by the time of her Lancaster House speech in January, she had actually given it content. Brexit would mean leaving the single market in order to control immigration and abandoning the customs union in order to strike new trade deals. But after the Prime Minister's election humiliation, what does Brexit mean now? <laughs> to which the answer is, we don't know. Is that, is that about the size of it, Brexit Henry? Well, I certainly don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it is important to Would you like to, to elaborate say, on that? Well, <laughs> yeah. Theresa May was... Um, was criticised even during this general election campaign for not really giving any new content to her Brexit plans. I think that was unfair. I think she had arrived at a perfectly reasonable, some might even say stable, opening negotiating position, which was that we were no longer going to be members of the single market for the simple reason that I think she correctly interpreted the Brexit vote as, in part, a desire from the British public to crack down on immigration. You can't crack down on immigration within the single market, so we had to leave. And she also bought the sort of Tory free market liberal rights argument that we needed to have a bright new trading future, possibly involving the recommissioning of the Royal Yacht Britannia. Uh, and to do that, you have to leave the customs union because within the customs union, you can only strike trade deals which are equivalent with trade deals that the EU has with its own trading partners. Now it's not so clear. She governs at the mercy of her cabinet. Her chancellor, who she wanted to sack, was Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond, it seems, would like some softening of her position on the customs union for the reason that it really worries business to have their, uh, you know, have their supply stuck in craters on the edges of Europe waiting for some guy with a clipboard to, to, to check it through. But leaving the customs union will wind up that sort of large group of Tory backbenchers uh, led by Steve Baker, who want to go around the world striking trade deals with Australia and Singapore and New Zealand and all the countries we once colonised. So the answer to what does Brexit mean now is, I don't know, Theresa May doesn't know, the Tory backbenchers don't know, but it can't be what it meant before on June the 8th. I, I think Phil. She, I agree with all of that. And I think she is, that therefore means that just as she's at the mercy of her own party, yeah, domestically, she is entirely at the mercy of the EU mm. in this negotiation. Because I'm, Henry's interpretation of, of, of Theresa May's position, I entirely agree with. I, I've been very sympathetic to the logic of her position. I think it's probably not great for Britain, but I absolutely see that that was a re reasonable interpretation of the referendum result. If you undo that, 
at some point you have to go back to the British people and say, do you know that vote where you wanted to take back control of your borders? Well, we're not going to do that. And that is going to be an incredibly difficult message to sell. And I just don't really see how that can be done unless, and this is where I think the EU holds all the cards, they are prepared to come to us and say there is some kind of reform on the table to, to freedom of movement which permits us to change the deadlock that currently links freedom of movement with the single market and customs union. Unless that changes, I don't see that there is a path forward anywhere. I think what's clear is that Brexit's softening, don't you think? Whatever hard or soft means, but it's going to be, we're moving into a more liberal, less hardline version of it. And that's partly because before the election, Theresa May was worried all about her right-wingers and the UKIP vote. That pretty much evaporated at the election. So now she's worried about the more liberal uh, moderate wing, so the Philip Hammonds, yeah. the Ruth Davidsons, who are poor, Ruth Davidson talks about an open Brexit. Philip Hammond has emphasised the importance of putting, you know, jobs and business before immigration controls. Mm. And I think that's where yeah. you're moving. But and those she also needs to haven't gone away, have they? I mean, the no. the, the hard ones. I agree with but you. But she also moved, needs but... she needs to have support from other parties, I think, to yeah. get well, this through the. Commons. I thought it was really yes. striking was Ruth Davidson saying this is not going to be a Tory Brexit. Yes. Which, given that she's the leader of the Scottish Tory party, supposedly under a, Scot- uh, a Conservative Prime Minister, I thought was quite a, a bold move. But this, this growing talk, Henry, of of some sort of cross-party arrangement, do you think that's a realistic possibility? I think at a cabinet level it is not feasible. Why, at the Lab- why would the Labour Party at its moment of maximum success... I mean, they didn't win the election, but they did better oh, than anyone Oh, hang on a minute. Thought. I think you'll find they did. <laughs> I, keep, I keep being told that they did, and Emily Thornby seems to think they might I mean, if it was a sort of under-over-par contest, they, they, <laughs> they won the election. Uh, so there you go, Emily. But, um, you know, it, I, I think they'd be mad to sort of agree to a sort of war cabinet kind of thing. But... It all comes down to the kind of parliamentary arithmetic. The Tory party is split on this, but so is the Labour Party. Now, that's a problem for Jeremy Corbyn, but it's also an opportunity for Theresa May, because if she can cobble together a parliamentary majority, which has the bulk of the Tory party, if not the hardliners, the bulk of the Labour Party, the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, then there is a parliamentary majority for some kind of softening of Brexit, whatever that means. So it is cross-party, but just not at a formal level. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, this is another split... Uh, this is an, I mean, the, the Labour moderates are talking about how they are, you know, humbled by what happened in the election. You know, they were wrong. Corbynism is more electoral or more 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 close to being elect, electable than they thought. But they disagree with Jeremy Corbyn about Brexit. You know, your your Chukra Munners and your Yvette Coopers uh, want a softer Brexit. They want a much closer link to the EU. Jeremy Corbyn, until he became leader of the Labour Party, was a Brexiter. The general election his campaigning strength is a demonstration of how little he cared about the EU because his campaigning in the European referendum was pathetic. Mm. And we now see that he is capable of campaigning enthusiastically and addressing rallies of young people who care about things like Europe. He just wasn't so fussed about it last June. And if we have a hard Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn and John MacDonald, who now think that they might end up as Prime Minister and Chancellor, can do what they've always wanted, which is reinstitute state aid, nationalise industries. Except that a lot of those young people were um, kind of switched on to politics by the Brexit vote and their sure. frustration that they felt they hadn't voted in the referendum and now were going to get engaged. So there is a sort of Well, one, one, of, one of the Labour Party's inadvertent successes in the campaign was making their position on Europe and Brexit so opaque that some people could think 
well, I wanted Brexit to happen and they seem to be going along with that. And other people could think, oh, Jeremy Corbyn is exciting and I, you know, he seems like he's on my side in terms of being mm. more pro-European. Yeah, there's a great political skill, I think, to be studiedly vague on a big <laughs> question because you don't divide people. Clarity is always a terrible idea. Well, in, that's, in that's Theresa May said. She, she managed to build up a big poll lead before calling the election by not saying and doing anything. And yeah. the more she said and did... Because if you're well disposed to somebody, I mean, Blair used to do this as well. If if you're well disposed to somebody in general and they say something, your initial likelihood is to think, well, he's probably saying what I think. And as long as they don't disabuse you of that, that can last for a while. Now, it obviously can't last forever. And we've got to real events now in this European argument and the Labour Party will have to make choices and uh, and I think it's very interesting what Rachel said about the division between the, the youth vote for Labour and Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell themselves mm. on that question. Mm. But also you're reaching a moment of reality with the EU so it's, it's very tempting to look at this all from a sort of Westminster and Theresa May authority or Jeremy Corbyn John McDonnell view point of view but actually in a way that's irrelevant because you've got the 27 countries who how much do they want to do a deal and I think that's where the Prime Minister's tone becomes very important that so far she's been incredibly high handed <laughs> sort of no deal's better than a bad deal and you know take it or leave it I'm going to set up Singapore on your doorstep if you don't do what I say and she went, now, she went to the palace and then came back and accused Brussels of interfering in the exactly. British election exactly and actually I, you know she, she got the tone spectacularly wrong with the Tory MPs on when she made her statement on Downing Street when she first came back from the palace well, after, after after the results became clear. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. um, but then she's got to now change her tone, I think, to, and become more humble and more, uh, you know, kind of um, conciliatory. Mm. Do you think that given the EU and then the, all the various configurations of the backbenchers, do you think there is a solution to this that can command assent from enough people to make it viable? Uh, it depends how you define solution. I think there's probably a fudge which can masquerade as a solution. That'll do. Uh, and it is probably something which, which kicks the big decisions uh, about Britain's future relationship into the long grass, i.e. to be decided after 2022. So some kind of transitional Some kind deal. of... I mean, what we were talking about when we talked about transitional deals before June the 8th was phased implementation of leaving the single market and phased implementation of leaving the customs union. Mm. We might now hear talk of a transition to a decision about leaving the single market. The question is whether the EU will bear that. I think there's a chance that the EU will say, well, this political mess is your fault. We've, we've moved on from thinking about Brexit. We've, we've spent the last year digesting the fact that we're going to be a 27-member bloc and have become more unified than ever before. So why don't we we've just decide... We've already the chair away, yeah, we've taken right. the flag well, down. Yeah. Um, you know, we're growing and you're not. Well, and, and, <laughs> and actually the EU is, is, is almost in a strong enough position, and I think there will be a clarifying moment on this at some point, to say, well, actually, crash out on no deal or stay on exactly the same terms and, what, and junk what your they, referendum. What, what do you think do we do that? Would do Well, that? it depends. I think the more chaotic Westminster gets, I think there is a chance that there will be a series of opinion polls to the extent that we now trust them. We only trust YouGov. There'll be a YouGov poll. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a special multivariable <laughs> analysis. Seven young people and they say... <laughs> I think there's a chance that public opinion will respond to Westminster chaos by saying, we don't like anything the government's doing. The government's doing Brexit. And there becomes a sense that if there were another referendum, Remain would win. And all the young uh, voters would vote then. And the young they? voters who were radicalised by the by the aftermath of the Brexit vote, but not before, so didn't vote, turn out. And that will become a clarifying question for 
Tory wet. So therefore, if the European leaders are listening to this podcast, which I'm sure they are, <laughs> they will suddenly have <laughs> got an argument for being really tough in those negotiations, haven't they? Because you've led them through the logic whereby we stay in as long as they don't allow us that transitional deal. Put it this way. Uh, if that happens, Henry, you've just changed the course of history. <laughs> I'll, I'll take my credit. Before June the 8th, there was zero chance of Britain not leaving the European Union. Now, as a simple argument that out of chaos anything can happen, there is a non-negligible chance that one of those outcomes is, is Britain's day. There were certainly senior Tories, and I think there were probably some who are in the Cabinet now, who came down on the Remain side in the end... Because although they could see all of the problems with being in the EU, it was just too much hassle and uncertainty to try and... You know, it wasn't perfect. In fact, it was probably worse than that. But leaving was more yep. problematic a, than... A very, than, very good conservative reason. Than, than staying. Acting. And actually, that view could potentially... Because nobody really seemed to appreciate quite what a, what a complicated mess it is. And there, s- slowly, the penny seems to be dropping. Apart from all some, of us who voted not to do that. For exactly that reason. Yes, yes. This was lots this, of people. This it was, was predictable, also, wasn't it? This actually. But, but it was the view of of the then Home Secretary Theresa May. Mm. I mean, apart, we may even come to see the last ten months as a sort of weird wobble in which <laughs> Theresa May, you know, adopted, harnessed, pursued the, you know, one of the harder visions of Brexit, which was on offer during the referendum. But she is now, through force of circumstance rather than force of internal argument been pushed back to somewhere where like like where she was originally except there is the slight issue that there was a referendum and leave one it, but, but she no, she no, said no. that uh if we voted to leave the eu the sky wouldn't fall in i mean we're quite close <laughs> arguably the delicious irony of course as well is that michael gove is now at ag- the agriculture and environment department so he's going to be have to be in charge of what happens to agricultural workers and you've got all the farmers saying if we have brexit without any immigrants from Europe allowed in. It's going to be an absolute total disaster. You're going to have fruit rotting in the fields. So he's going to have to have some kind of deal which allows low-paid, low-skilled workers from the EU, almost certainly, coming into Britain. And it's a sort of a fiasco that he was the person who led this charge on, you know, immigration during the referendum campaign. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just goes to show that even in her darkest moments, Theresa May still got a sense of humour <laughs> to give uh, that job to Michael Gove. Um, listen, let's move on and turn our attention to the other big story of the election campaign, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. And this is Phil Collins. The conventional advice to Jeremy Corbyn would be that having gathered 40% of the electorate, he should move to the political centre to start to peel off people who were wavering from the Conservatives. This might not be the time for conventional advice. Mr Corbyn might be better off doing what he has been doing and staying on the left. Well, Phil, so having spent several months saying he had to move close to the centre, you think he should he should now carry on? I th- certainly think it's worth thinking about because, you know, you have to... The, the Labour Party has been split on two questions and the first was on whether Corbyn was electable and the second was on, was on whether he was desirable. And on the first, 
if you, you have to concede that this election has profoundly changed the calculation. If you don't concede that, then you know, you're not watching or, or you're churlish. Um, to get 40% of the, of the electorate is a stunning achievement. And to bring in a whole new cavalry of voters, which I never thought was possible, is a remarkable achievement. And I salute it. And therefore you think, actually, you're doing something quite unconventional, which has changed the, t the, the terms of the debate, and we're in quite tumultuous times politically. I'm not certain it's therefore necessarily the right thing to just do the conventional thing from here on in. Maybe he's better off just carrying on as he is. And two reasons that I think that. One is we don't have definite figures yet, but we think the turnout amongst the, the lowest, youngest cohort of voters is about 70%. In 1964, it was 88%. There are still people you can gather. And also, if you did do a conventional shift to the right, I'm not sure you keep hold of the coalition you've already got. So it's not the case necessarily that you can move over because these people are animated by their hatred of that kind of politics. You know, they like the authenticity of what they regard as of, of Corbyn's position. So I think you, you risk ruining what you've got and what you've done by taking the advice of people like Alistair Campbell, that he's been dispensing over the weekend, which is a traditional new Labour move to the right. I don't think that's the right thing for him to do because Corbyn's appeal is as a populist, an insurgent, an anti-establishment, anti-politics person from within the fold. Now, to all of those us who are older, we regard that as preposterous because he's been the MP for Islington for 30 years. But if you're new to politics, and I don't disparage it because I remember when I was new to politics and I was full of excitement and I didn't know the details of this, that and the other, so what? That he is the repository of your hopes. And if he loses that then he's lost what has got him to this point in the first place. So I think he should probably ignore the grizzled veterans of the new Labour years, apart from those of us who are totally changing their view like me, <laughs> and, and carry on doing what he's doing. Whether he can go further with it, I don't know, but I don't think he, there's a route to power for him to take the, the usual route. Which, what do you think? Is there, a, is, is there more? Because I suppose there's always the uh, risk for the... Corbyn camp they think one more heave will do it but is it possible that the circumstances of last week meant that that is the maximum by, by holding on to the Labour vote that Jet Ed Miliband had adding in some enthusiastic young people and some non-voters it's still there is still another heave to get I mean he did still fall 54 56 seats behind yeah exactly he didn't win the election but I think we do have to acknowledge that he did really well I don't I just think we can't predict anything these days I think anything <laughs> we say that we predict is always wrong so I but I what I think is interesting is that he won as Phil says as an optimist and I as an idealist rather than as a sort of statesman who is going to govern he won as an insurgent and he won on the basis of protest votes he really he didn't win Rachel oh but he yeah. no he didn't win okay he succeeded they're getting to, to you. the extent that he <laughs> that's what I mean he didn't but that I, so the sort we of need logic, a new term don't we for yeah, someone who's done incredibly well he did but well. hasn't won lost he lost he lost, oh. he lost. He lost as a populist <laughs> yeah. but, he, but that maybe indicate that there is a limit and that if you were going to get into power that people would look at you in a new light so I think he wasn't taken seriously during the campaign early on at least, by the media, or actually at all, yeah. by, uh, about whether or not, yeah. you know, did the plans add up. And he wasn't considered in those terms, no. which in a way is fair enough, because I think that wasn't how he yeah. was standing. We all know lots of Labour MPs who essentially ran their campaign on the grounds that you can vote for me 
safe in the knowledge that there's no chance that you're voting for exactly. Jeremy Corbyn. That's actually a dishonest position. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm quite annoyed at that position. It's a dishonest position. Uh, and it does... Jeremy Corbyn was predicated as the man who can't be Prime Minister. How he would fare in an election in which he's predicated as the man who could be remains to be seen. Well, there was that real sense of panic as the polls narrowed from the Labour Party manifesto leak, then the launch, then the Tory manifesto. As the polls started narrowing, I remember writing about this for Red Box and pointing out, because there was a lot of noise around the Tory manifesto, but the Labour Party poll rates were creeping up and creeping up and creeping up. And I spoke to some Labour MPs who were worried because their entire strategy was based on he can't win. And as soon as it looked like he might win, that potentially affected what they thought was their base. Isn't that a note of caution for Phil's idea of Corbyn moving further to the left and trying to keep this coalition together? Because, yes, it had the new voters that Corbyn energised and, yes, it had lifelong Labour voters who like Jeremy Corbyn. Labour also just held on to a lot of the seats that I travelled around the country watching Theresa May target. Uh, seats in the West Midlands, the North East and the North West. Gloria de Piero in Ashfield, for example, held on by just a few hundred votes. Now, now that those voters have seen there is a chance that Jeremy Corbyn could be Prime Minister and that it wasn't true that a Labour vote would have no chance of putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street, they might look at him and look at a vote for the Labour Party rather differently, yeah. particularly if the next election is in the context of a chaotic hung parliament, Theresa May or whoever succeeds her falls on the basis of being able to unable to get parliamentary legislation through. I mean, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn will go into that election as a favourite. And then if you're someone in, in a <laughs> Labour yeah. seat, you're who's always voted Labour. I agree. You're not I, agree. Yeah. I agree. It very much is a note of caution. And what you're saying is the Labour coalition is very unstable, mm. I think it is, which is why... And, this, and in a way, this sounds absurd when the Labour Party just got 40% in the election. I don't think the question of the, of the left splitting is yet finished, be precisely because I don't think it would make sense for Corbyn to move to the right. I don't think he can. And I don't think he should. And you're probably right that there aren't enough votes on the left to, to win. Um, but at the same time, if he tries to move, it, it doesn't work either way. So the the way it would work, a conscious uncoupling would be absolutely perfect, in which all of the rights of the Labour Party say, in a spirit of, in an amicable spirit, at a joint press conference hosted by Jeremy Corbyn and Chuck Ramuna, <laughs> we we consciously uncouple. We're friends, and we look forward to the day when we work together Sharing in government. Children. And and yet we are going to disagree honestly in different parties rather than fight for supremacy within this one. That would be a, a rational and beautiful world, and. I don't think it's likely, but in this moment of massive change, who knows what can happen? Well, does there become a point where if Jeremy Corbyn looks like he could become Prime Minister, and there are sort of two opponents to his within the Parliamentary Labour Party, there are those who just don't think he's very good, who've had to admit that despite their views, the public seems to disagree in some areas. Mm. And there are those who think he would be genuinely dangerous. They don't agree with him on national security, on economic policy, a whole load of areas. Do those people end up having to make a choice about propping up or in some way supporting a man which they just fundamentally did? It was OK when he wasn't posing a, a real threat. One of the lessons of Jeremy Corbyn's nearly two years as, as Labour Party leader is that the Labour moderates are cowards. Yes. And they will go on uh, in the belief that they can be his puppet master. Uh, which we now have nearly two years of evidence that they can't be. I mean, I remember when he was elected Labour leader, all the all, loads of moderates saying, well, this is bad, but, you know, we've got Tom Watson as deputy and obviously Jeremy will just end up doing everything that Tom says. That didn't prove to be the case. Some of them served in the shadow cabinet, Hillary Benn as shadow foreign secretary. But then you ended up with the ludicrous spectacle of 
the leader of the Labour Party and the Shadow Foreign Secretary taking opposing positions in the same debate at the same dispatch box. I think, you know, you just return to that. Yeah, I think that's right. The, I mean, as I said earlier, I think the, the moderates have hidden behind the argument about electability because that seemed as though that was enough to deny that he could be electable meant you didn't have to have the troubling conversation about his philosophical position and you didn't have to confront the fact either that you're quite left-wing yourself and your dirty secret is you do quite like all the nationalisations but you don't think the electorate will buy it or that you fundamentally disagree. That question is now posed. Those MPs have to now confront that question. I remember interviewing David Miliband a few months ago and he said, my problem with Jeremy Corbyn isn't that he's not electable, it's that I think his programme for government wouldn't work. And actually that's a much more honest way of talking about it. Now he would probably then say, if he was still in Westminster, well, we got to fight to get the Labour Party back or whatever, but that's the issue. The issue is there's a fundamental... he was out on the campaign trail, wasn't he? And if uh, if they learn one lesson from all this, writing uh, endless articles for progress and the new statesman is not the way no. to they're uh, not red box they're not red box <laughs> you can't write a red box if you want to whether or not it uh, is a good way to launch a leadership campaign uh, I have my doubts I, I think unfortunately uh, we've run out of time there uh, my thanks um, as always for uh, well for you for listening don't forget you can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box but for now from Phil Collins Henry Zeffman Rachel Sylvester and me Matt Jolly it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.